Have you ever heard of an armchair quarterback? It means someone has an opinion but doesn't necessarily participate in the sport. But it also means that they care enough about the sport to discuss it and try to make it better. In our basketball world, we call this cardboard box seats. We see the game from afar like true fans, but we always show up with the same intensity as if we were at the games ourselves. We don't have the money or the connections like the other talking heads on TV, but we do have some ideas which might seem too out there, and honestly we've got opinions which might change. Either way, we have fun, so come and watch the game with us from our cardboard box seats. Alright guys, welcome back to another episode of Cardboard Box Seats. Nick's here. Gabe's here. And today we have a special guest. We have Bernard. Condevo. Condevo. <laughs> the good French name, which you'll see why that's important with the Detroit Pistons right now. But I am the medical director for the Detroit Pistons, who coincidentally are my favorite team. So that was a that was a match made in heaven. Awesome. Well, go ahead and tell us kind of like what the medical director does for the Pistons and go ahead and give us a like a scenic route of your career kind of thus far. Sure. Well, I'll start with the scenic route. Um, and basically, I went to PT school here in Detroit at Wayne State University um, back when we were the Tartars. Now, apparently, we're the Warriors because nobody knew what a Tartar was. Um, what is a Tartar? It, well, we don't make sauce. It is actually like a Spartan warrior. So there were Spartans, there were Trojans, and there were Tartars. So um, there you go. There's there's a tidbit of knowledge for everyone. <laughs> um, but they're the warriors now, so go figure. Um, but uh, when I finished PT school, I was always interested in sports. Uh, you know, I'd been an athlete all my life and was really interested in working in the sports field. So got into orthopedics um, and, and breaking into the professional ranks – uh, or the collegiate ranks in Michigan was definitely challenging. Um, so after being here uh, for about six months after school, I went out to San Francisco just to try and see how things were on the other side of the country. Uh, and, you know, I worked with a lot of recreational athletes, uh, worked with a cycling team in San Francisco, did some bike racing. But really, again, trying to get into – elite level sports was a challenge. I mean, I would work with cyclists. I worked with uh, actually captain of the All Blacks uh, rugby team once. Um, but overall, it was really, you might find the individual client. Um, so a very good friend of mine, Rob Carrera, who I went to PT school with, was an administrator in Denver, Colorado, and asked me if I would move to Denver to take a position. And after, you know, some talking back and forth, decided to make the move into Colorado, uh, which turned out to be great. Denver's a great place if you've not been there. Love Colorado. But I was lucky because the timing was two years before the Colorado Rockies came to town. So when the Rockies came to town, they were looking for somebody to assist with uh, rehab of players who couldn't travel with the team, so who really just needed to do full-time rehab beyond what the team wanted to offer. So the team doctors at the time had recommended two people. One was my friend Rob who brought me out there, but again, he was in administration at that time. Uh, and I was the other one. So it worked out where I had a player rehabbed him. It went well. Uh, they actually tested me by having uh, newspaper guys call and ask me questions 
to see what I would say. And, you know, if you've ever seen Bull Durham, I was right along that line, basically just saying, hey, you know, the guy works hard and, you know, God willing, he'll be back and ready. And they're like, well, you be ready for spring training. You know, you have to have the <laughs> training staff about that. Uh, that's not my call, but boy, he works really hard. And so then I got a call from the train the next day saying, you passed. <laughs> and uh, so then I started seeing all kinds of their players, minor leaguers, professionals. And then two years later, the Colorado Avalanche came to town. And they had looked to the Rockies for a recommendation. They said they worked with me. Uh, so I started doing work with the Avalanche as well. So still working in the clinic, but more like a consultant for them and rehabbing some of their athletes. So um, it was really fun. Uh, it was Stanley Cup years. And although I'm a diehard Red Wings fan, uh, it was very exciting to be at that level and watching, you know, one of the best hockey teams in the country. And then uh, from that, I was still racing bikes uh, and working with local cycling things and, and the rehab company I worked with at the time uh, supported me in doing a national uh, junior development program type thing where I would go and test junior racers on uh, anaerobic threshold, uh, educate them on basic training schedules. I would get pros to talk to them about, you know, how you conduct yourself as a pro and how to, you know, build your training and focus on things like that. And then, uh, you know, that took me around to different national level races uh, and I came across somebody who helped connect me to the French team. And, you know, my name, Bernard Condevo, it's actually Bernard I am the first member of my family uh, to be born in the United States. So my parents were French. My older sister was French. So having that connection, they were like, hey, the French team is coming to Colorado. You know, would you be willing to help them? Uh, and I said, of course. So, you know, I worked at the mountain bike world championships with the French national team. Uh, which was a great experience and working with the French team in cycling is, you know, akin to working with the New England Patriots um, or the New York Yankees. I mean, you've worked with them. It's considered the pinnacle of that sport. Um, and then the U.S. team came calling shortly thereafter, and I was with them for 25 years uh, going from national level race to world championships to Pan Am Games uh, to three Olympic Games which I thought was going to be the pinnacle of my uh, career and was pretty happy with that until, you know, the call came to join the Detroit Pistons before last season. And that's what got me here. Um, so to go on to what the role of the medical director is, again, I'm a physical therapist. So sometimes people hear medical director and they assume I'm a physician, but I'm not. And I did not stay in the Holiday Inn last night. So uh, <laughs> it's Holiday Inn Express, but uh but uh, so what I do is I oversee all aspects of player care. So athletic trainers uh, are under me. And I really like our head trainer, Jim Scholler. He and I work pretty much side by side. Uh, technically, I am the head of the department. Um, so we have athletic training. Performance is with me. Mental health will report to me as well. Uh, the physicians that we have that work with Henry Ford, who are fantastic, uh, great guys to work with, they work as part of our team as well. Uh, so basically coordinating everything. You know, certainly I don't overstep a doctor's recommendations. And luckily our, our physicians, Dr. Matsuros and Dr. Shehab, are awesome and we have a great dialogue. So basically i help coordinate things and if people need procedures or or diagnostic tests um you know we help coordinate that between myself and the trainer and certainly report to the front office and ownership on player medical player health in between recommendations on playing time or recovery time you know we review 
trade disclosures uh, before trade comes they may let us know hey there's a player coming with this type of history is that worth it um you know likewise during the combine we will look at things review medical and, and assign medical risk based on you know is this worth the gamble for a draft pick so a pretty all-encompassing job but i mean tough to beat it it's a great job Wow, that's that is all encompassing. Holy cow! With with the title of medical director, I mean, yeah, that that pretty much does cover it all. And talk and talking about the just the scenic route that you gave us. Holy cow! That that is incredible that you were able to work with all of these other professional athletes and even these international international teams. That that must have been a lot of fun working for them for sure. Oh, absolutely. I mean, and I, I worked for a while with a uh, the number one cycling team in the world, which is a Belgian outfit, Quick Step, and. Uh, that was a unique thing to see actually how a world tour team works compared to say in domestic team or you know local races so you know from world cup races in canada to say tour california or the colorado pro challenge just the difference in the the operations which was eye-opening and you know i think all these experiences are benefits as you move forward and you can apply things that you've learned modify them um, adapt them to the needs that arise uh, and I definitely, I think that's helped make me well enough rounded to, to face the challenges of, of this position. Gotcha. Gotcha. So you wrote a chapter about cycling injuries in which you cited the importance of like mechanics and recovery with, with specifically NBA players, I guess in this case, returning from in- injuries, what do you or your team typically look for before the player is cleared to return? Oh, it, it's it's actually quite extensive. One thing I was impressed with in the NBA is the ability to track all kinds of efforts. So uh, when they're on the court at practice uh, or in games, we can track the mileage, we can track the speed, we can we can track the accelerations, decelerations, the accelerations done at speed, the number of high load stops. So we can get all kinds of information. So, for example, Gabe, if you were coming back and you were a you know, starting power forward, uh, you know, say you're a four and I'm saying, okay, you know, this is what, when you were playing your 30 minutes a game, you averaged this distance overall, you had your max speed was here, you had this many accelerations, decelerations, and on and on. And then we can base our rehab as we start to progress them through the process. We know that for them to come back, they have to be close to the levels they hit in the game. And the reason we want them close to that is because no matter how intense practice is, it's never as intense as a game. So, uh, for example, we just had a player come back very recently, and we had made sure, you know, when they were checking to see if they're ready to come back, we could already account for the fact that they've covered more distance in single sessions than they had in any game. We had the accelerations, we had a higher max speed. So from a measurable standpoint, they had met all the metrics for return to play. And of course, most importantly, symptoms were under control because I don't care what the tests are. If the player does not feel ready to come back, then they are not ready to come back. Gotcha. So additionally, I guess kind of going off that question, has a screening like this, what you were describing, um, has it ever revealed like an underlying issue in a player's, whether it's like mechanics, uh, the way they move or uh, just their overall health? Because you mentioned a lot that you're tracking even their deceleration, which I wouldn't even think about to consider, but that's such a crucial, crucial part. Oh, I mean, when you look at a guy like a James Harden, 
or for us, a Luke Kennard. So much of their game is based on that deceleration where they will drive forward, plant their foot, and, and step back to get that separation to shoot a three. I mean, you really see different players have different styles. And for some, uh, you know, vertical is going to be more important than max speed. Decelerations are always going to be a part of basketball, but there's some where it's, it's certainly more important than others. Um, but yes, going back to that, we will also use force plates for counter-movement jumps. We watch the quality of their movement uh, during our rehab exercises, during their court workouts. So, you know, they're like a regular patient, except obviously everything that we do is going to be focused on basketball. So if I'm going to work your core, we're going to go through a core progression similar to what you would do to a, a more athletic patient in the clinic, but we're going to try to shape those to where they're more basketball specific. So, uh, you know, we'll do more core exercise on your feet. Uh, we may do positions in a, a stance, make sure the ankle positions are the same as you would experience on the basketball court. Um, but with the force plates in particular, we can see, are they guarding? Are they, are they loading properly on the eccentric when they land? How's the explosiveness? Are they landing evenly on each leg? So they can look well to the naked eye, but we can look at the at the numbers and say, you know what, he's still protecting that leg. And we have data from before any injury, so we can also say, here's where you were before, here's where you are now, and we can say, you know, within a percentage, this is going to be good or bad. So absolutely, you can see some underlying issues. And in basketball in general, I mean, it's amazing athletes, number one. But a lot of guys who are would be what you would consider like really like tight, uh, very explosive, very quick. You know, some of these guys have super high arched feet. I mean, everything is really bound where you could see some issues with that, but you don't really want to correct it because that's why they're explosive and that's their game. So it's it's one of those trying to control some of the variables. You're going to have some abnormalities. You're going to have some some potential issues but you have to try to manage those properly so that they never you know come full circle into what we call an injury or or time off from the game so i will say before jumping into the next question when you used gabe uh, as part of that with the power forward his ego dif- definitely did shoot up like 100 percent. so absolutely <laughs> We're Skyping each other right now, and I I actually saw my head swell in size with my ego. But anyway. <laughs> so <laughs> um, so there, there seems to be, like, some players in the NBA who are continually, like, plagued with injuries, some career-ending and some that are just simply recurrent. So, like, what does rehab look like for those players who are a little more prone to injury than others? Well, a big thing that we've done, and I think some other teams have adapted as well, is we try to go through a routine, and we try to find what is that player's profile when they're at their best. And that can include, for some players, great toe extension, because great toe extension is a huge measurable in basketball. Ankle dorsiflexion. If they're not getting proper ankle dorsiflexion, where does that force transfer? It, you know, it's very common to have tight hips, so you may have some people with very limited hip internal rotation. Well, what is that going to transfer down? Now, if somebody has really tight hips anatomically, you're not necessarily going to make them more mobile. But what you may find is that, hey, when they're at 10 degrees of hip internal rotation and, say, 30 degrees of closed chain ankle dorsiflexion, what have you, we'll have certain metrics for every player. When they are 
at those numbers, they're at their best. So we will go through on a regular routine. We will measure their range of motion. There are certain key indicators for certain players, depending on what your history is. And we will look at that. We will look at knee flexion. We'll look at ankle dorsiflexion, great toe extension, hip internal, external rotation. It may be shoulder motion. But we're going to look at these motions, and we're going to measure them and just say, okay, if you're not at the range in that acceptable range, we're going to work on you with some manual therapy and some exercise to get you back into that range. Now when you're in that range, now you go into the rehab exercise or even just regular practice. So we make sure you're optimized before that. And if you're somebody with a history of injuries, certainly we're gonna monitor those areas uh, probably with a little bit more detail or maybe more areas more specifically. So, you know, we will watch what is necessary uh, for any individual, what is their optimal range of motion, their optimal um, posture, their optimal strength, and make sure we're there. And when we're not there, we address it before it becomes an issue. So another question kind of like, kind of on the same line. So with the trade deadline approaching, um, I don't know if the Pistons have any plans, but I most most of the time when, when play like teams trade close to the trade deadline, what kind of goes into that from a medical director or PT standpoint, do you guys do like evaluations on players you're about to trade so that way the other team has a heads up and then do you guys do like an eval on a new acquired player? No, every team is required to have trade disclosure. So it's basically a highlighted EMR. So you want to make sure they've had echocardiograms done before the season. There's certain things that the NBA requires you to do on a regular basis to ensure player health. I will say the NBA is very proactive. I've been very impressed with the importance they put on mental health and, and physical health of the players. Now, looking at the schedule, sometimes you may wonder about that, but, but they really require us uh, to be pretty strict on our reporting. So any significant injury, like if somebody, you know, had a contusion on their quad and, you know, they didn't miss any time, we may not list something like that. But ankle sprains, any surgeries, anything that caused you to miss any period of time, that will be noted. So if we were going to trade, you know, I'll put you in here, Nick. If we're going to trade for you, one of the first things that happens is the trainer or medical director for your team would send to us trade disclosure that gives the medical history, and we would also have access to your medical records. So we all have a medical records database. We only have access to our own players. You can grant temporary access to other teams or other players. So for example, if we were trading for you, they would probably give me two or three days access to observe your medical records. And that lets me look at MRIs, x-rays, CT scans, EMG, anything like that, any treatment notes, any physician's notes. And then I can gather, okay, hey, this person, you know, may, you know, hey, Nick had a um, navicular fracture that was repaired uh, a year ago, and you know what? Since that point, that may be why, you know, when we look at numbers, his acceleration's down. Now, is that something that he's playing around, or is that something that we can work on and we think we can, you know, mitigate that risk? So that's the sort of thing where it comes in. The, the front office will, will make it, um, but they may contact, and like Jim, our head trainer's been around the league. Um, I think this is going to be his 12th year now. He was with Memphis before. So he has a lot of connections around the league that he can kind of mine those for information if it was somebody who played for another team before. Um, but normally, when it gets to that point of where we're thinking of pulling the trigger, they will reach out and say, hey, take a look at this. Tell us what you think. 
And, you know, if we think this is a no-go or we think, hey, this is a big risk or this is no big deal, you know, they'll take that into consideration. It's not make or break, uh, but they'll certainly look into our recommendations as part of the the completion for the trade. But technically, there should be nothing that you could hide in a trade. Uh, you know, any any history that you have, even if it's from 10 years ago, would be on that trade disclosure. And then to follow up on that, normally we would have our physicians do a quick. So we would have our orthopod, uh, Bill Matsuros, and our internist, Ramsey Shehab, do a quick evaluation of them when they first come. But normally that's, we've basically made the trade. They come to town, they will evaluate them. And assuming everything is good, you know, we go through our little process, Jim and I, and then boom, you know, trades completed. So in recent seasons, multiple players have come forward about their mental health state while playing in the NBA. Uh, of course, the big names that come to mind are DeMar DeRozan and Kevin Love, who are outspoken about, just the mental health aspect, but even LeBron James is even, he's, he's talked a lot about the mental conditioning aspect of, as well. Can you describe a little bit of the role of mental health and conditioning and how that works together with physical conditioning? Well, I think the mental health aspect is huge because if you have any, it could be something as simple as an ADHD, uh, which maybe you can't focus as well, um, which is causing you to not perform as well as you can, or maybe uh, you're not going to be on time for practice. Uh, any sort of depression, anxiety uh, that can affect your performance on the court and certainly put you at more of a risk for injury. Uh, any personal issues can, can compound those. So huge role, and the awareness is much bigger. I mean, my both years that I've been here, uh, I've started out the season going out to Chicago. The NBA has a mental health conference they have the mental health professionals and and some of the medical staff uh from every team go up to chicago and we meet and and the pistons now have a full-time uh psychologist with the team uh who is there he travels with us talks to players on a regular basis we also have psychiatrists and psychologists through a relationship with henry ford hospital uh which has been very positive as well and you know, the big thing with the mental health is you have to make sure that the player comes forth with a problem and we get them the resources they need. It is confidential. That is the biggest thing. It must be the coaches understand. If the player goes into mental health, the only thing I can say is, you know what, they went in and that's it. And and if it's the coach doesn't need to know, they don't need to know, I've made the arrangement, it's, it's nobody's concern. If the player chooses to make it open, they can. But it's important to respect their privacy on that. So I think understanding how to manage your mental health and having and, and you know, we've got resources and, and the NBA has been very proactive in making sure teams treat this very seriously. Uh, and, you know, I'll tell you, my wife is a mental health professional, so it's, it's a subject that's very near and dear to me as well. Um, but the mental conditioning aspect as well, I think that's a huge thing. I think you'll find younger players, um, you know, in big moments or against big players or sometimes just the mental fatigue. It's 82 games. You know, we travel. We sometimes, you know, land in Detroit at 2 o'clock in the morning. You know, by the time you get in your car, you drive from the airport, you get home. We've got practice the next day or if it's a back-to-back. You know, you got to play. That's physically draining. It's very mentally draining. And if you're mentally fatigued, that's going to impact you even more. I mean, an example, this year we had uh, snow hit Detroit. Our second game of a back-to-back was in Miami. So we played in Detroit. We're going to Miami. We were supposed to land in Miami at, I believe, 2 o'clock in the morning. 
we didn't take off until after three o'clock in the morning. We were setting up the training room as the sun came up. So we really had players hit in the sack at about 6 a.m. for a game that night. And first half, we played like we were sleepwalking. Second half, they came alive. Now, some players respond differently. There's a, and LeBron is a great example. I'd say Kawhi is probably another great example of guys who have that mental that mental toughness, you know, they've, they've been through things, they've learned how to deal with things, and a lot of players have it, but it is a skill that can be refined and honed, and I think you will see it's rare to find the really young player that has that maturity um, and experience to be able to have that, and maturity not in that they're immature, but just as you get older, you have a certain maturity to yourself. So I think that is a huge aspect in the game because – it's how you keep a performance. I mean, a guy like a LeBron, for example. Um, now, I've never worked with LeBron, met him at the Olympic Games, but you know, I've had the pleasure of watching him play uh, from right behind the bench. And I'll tell you what, it's just he's engaged. He's when he's playing, he is all in. It's amazing to watch this guy and realize like how many times he's done this. I mean, at some point you mentally check out and go, "This is just game 45," but he doesn't. Every game matters and. I think it's it's one of the factors that will separate good players from great players is the ability to master that because it, it's a skill just like shooting and everything else. And it's one that allows you to be on top of your game more than others. That's awesome. Yeah, and we definitely we agree. It's definitely something we've talked about on our podcast, at least is just how awesome it is that the league noticed that and heard heard the players and took action so quickly because, I mean, that, that just shows how dedicated they are to the players. Absolutely. They say it's players' league, so. Yeah, exactly. So are there any, like, clinical foundations that you stress to your clinicians or, or that you stressed while you, you were working as a PT for, like, the Avalanche and the Rockies to focus on with your players? Uh, well, I mean, we always try to stay evidence-based. I mean, and, and there's always some risk to that. There's going to be some techniques that maybe don't have the most evidence just because it's not something to be measurable. But in general, we want to do things that are based in research and based in science and proven so that we know we can tell the players, we can tell the management, we can tell the agents, we are giving this player the absolute best care that they can possibly get. Um, I think our players appreciate what we do, so I think we've done a good job. I, for myself... You know, and, and talking to you guys, I've noticed it, it has to be fun. So a big thing for me is we're going to have stressful moments. One of the, it's not really a clinical foundation, but you have to be somebody that I can work with who's fun, who can, you know, you know, bust my chops sometimes during a tough moment and just kind of lighten the mood because we're going to have the stress. But we've got to be able to get along. We've got to be able to respond well. I mean, Jim and I share an office. We sit next to each other on every flight. We work next to each other. I sit behind them on the bench, you know, a couple of rows, a couple of seats over. But, you know, I'm probably around him. I'm definitely around him way more than my wife because she's in Denver. Um, but so it's one of those, I mean, it's quite a relationship that you really have to have somebody that you trust, that you're comfortable with, and that you respect. And and I'm glad to say that we have that team um, because if you look at last year, we had very few injuries. We were, in fact, fifth in the league in player games missed due to injury. And this year has been, you know, more of a challenge. But you don't change everything you do. The foundation is 
here's why we do it. We don't, we may change our decisions, but we don't change how we come to our decisions. So we try to use, you know, everybody's input. We use, you know, hey, if your background's here, I will listen to you. Uh, we use our strength coaches. We use our doctors. Everybody has a say, and then we will come to the best consensus on what the best course of treatment is for every individual, and we follow that. So I think, yeah, you have to be clinically savvy. You have to have some experience, but you have to have that intellectual curiosity to to read articles, to stay up to date on what is the, the latest, but also having a solid foundation of what's been proven and solid. Uh, you know, for example, you know, we understand the importance of proprioception and balance. You know, we used to use wobble boards and BOSU balls, and now we have a computerized system called the Delos, you know, where we can measure body sway. We can measure how quickly they go into pronation, supination, and really use that as a feedback to get people better. So having the foundation in anatomy, physiology, kinesiology, you guys study hey. that, but it's really, you have to understand how the body works so you can understand how the body can recover and you know it's it's we like to joke we're believers in science and you'll get a lot of opinions on well you know hey this or that or you know load management blah blah you know back in my day you know we had people you know whatever we can we can show force we can show that over you know level of games we use the acute chronic work ratio you know, at different ratios to see, hey, when is somebody getting at that red line so we can make recommendations to the coaching staff saying, hey, you know, maybe we have to affect the minutes here because we're getting into a danger zone with this individual. We will stress recovery modalities with them and the players have bought into them, which has really helped. So really, you know, it comes back to just understanding this is how tissue works. For example, tendons, how long do tendons take to respond to a load? So, how do you properly rehab a tendon injury or prevent a tendon injury if you don't understand what loads tendons respond to and the time frame that it takes for tendons to respond? And understanding the NBA schedule, which makes that a challenge as well. So really having a foundation in anatomy, physiology, kinesiology, a movement in general, and having the confidence to, to trust what you do and not do things based on emotion but do things on objective and observational data. That's awesome. I like some of the stuff I'm sure you guys have, like we've definitely never heard of, like not using the BOSU or, or the wobble board to see the pronation and supination. I, I can only imagine just the, the amount of technology you have to help the players yeah, and, and rehab and, and everything. Also, you know, we still use these tools, right? but now we can measure and we can actually say objectively. So, I mean, I may... For example, if I had you doing single leg BOSU squats or had you on a wobble board or even just single leg stance, you know, how do we measure that? Okay, I'm going to count how long can you hold it without losing your balance or, hey, you know, what kind of wobble do you have here? I can give you a very subjective take on, ah, it looks like your hip is holding a lot steadier, you're, you're engaging your core more. But here I can tell you, wow, look at this, how much more central you are your, your body's swaying less you're really controlling this and we'll get a score so we can actually objectively say you are better this is responding better and, and it you know turns out with fewer ankle injuries and, and and players pick up on this so it still comes back to the fundamentals we just have some more you know if you know how to drive a volkswagen beetle you know how to drive now if you get in a lamborghini you go a hell of a lot faster and you probably handle the road a lot better but it's still driving so it, it's just having the tools to do what you do better. 
kind of bouncing off what Nick said, um, just in general, the medical world has made leaps and bounds, especially in regard to the amount of research that's available. Are you or your team currently involved in any research studies? Uh, you know what? We, we wanted to work with Henry Ford on one, and, and our performance director, Trent Salo, who's a phenomenal PT and just one of the smartest guys I've ever met. You want to talk about an intellectual curiosity and somebody who dives into science, he is your guy. But with the NBA, you have to be careful because the the player information is private. So, you know, we, we can't really use generic data. You have to have permission from the league. So I know, I know Trent is working on some ideas. I know the doctor is trying to get through the league for a longitudinal study, but overall, no, we are not, but I'm not saying there's not an interest to do so. We just have to do it within the confines and the, and the restrictions that the league may have for us. So recently we had uh, Andrew D. Bernstein, the sports photographer, on our podcast. And he, he told us a story about he got injured one time when, when Shaq or James Harden fell into him. And it kind of made us think, what uh, what role does the Pistons medical staff have when like refs or photographers or the media or maybe even fans Absolutely. get injured? Now, if, if you're a spectator, you know, I mean, we've got EMS crews. And technically, we really don't take care of the crowd. But if we see something, certainly we'll react. Um, but no, anything that happens on the floor with an official, uh, with one of the cheerleaders, we're one of the extreme team. Yeah, we're on top of that. Uh, we go through emergency action plans at the start of the season with the EMS crew on our signals. Uh, the trainer, obviously, will get out there first for the cute. I get out there. I have an AED with me everywhere we go. Uh, I'm onto the court with that. You know, we signal if we want uh, the stretcher, if we want all hands on deck, if we just need the orthopod. I mean, so we are we are absolutely in that. Now, if somebody in the second deck has a heart attack, you know, that's really on the arena. But anything on the floor, absolutely. So before the game, if, uh, if an official has even a chronic condition, you know, we will send some things. Now, I know there's a company that has uh, contracted athletic trainers to take care of the officials directly. It used to fall under us. Uh, they do it. But if they need supplies, we will help them out. If something happens on the court, uh, we will certainly help them out with that. So what does the process look like when applying for an exception when a player is hurt or maybe like out for the season and what factors are taken into account? And this question, just a, just a simple shout out. Uh, this is actually... Um, from Justin Rob Doyle. He was one of our, our co-hosts that one time. He, he found out that you were going to be on here. So he's like, oh, man, I got to ask this guy a question. Uh, well, it, it's actually it's a fairly complicated process, and I will admit that Jim did most of the paperwork for that. But there there's a lot of paperwork involved uh, to get an exception. Um, a player has to be um, known that you're going to miss a significant amount of time to where a replacement would be worthy. And if you look at the history of the player exceptions, um, there I think there's been 40 granted and maybe four used. I, I may be wrong on the numbers, but the or, or 20, but it's been, there's way more granted than are used. So if you look at the Pistons, for example, in our current situation, we have a salary exemption for a roster spot, but we don't have a roster spot. So any move that we made in that regard would have a salary cap implication which would then put us in the salary tax. So it's a tricky thing. Now, if there were trades that were to happen, maybe a roster spot opens and then that spot becomes valuable. Um, but just because you get a, a salary exemption does not mean you get a roster exemption. And that's where it gets a little tight is 
you may not have the roster spot to to add a player on. But it's a it's kind of a complicated process. I know I'm not really answering the question, but I didn't do a lot with it. Uh, actually, our head trainer Jim Scholler did. So um, I just know it was pretty involved. It goes through a big process. A lot of people in our company work with it, and then it goes to the league for approval. And if they approve it, boom, there you go. So it, but it's not straightforward. Like you got it now, great. You can sign somebody for that money. You know, you have it in case. But I think it would depend on what happens farther down the road. Since, like for example, we don't have a roster spot at this point. So, kind of backing backing up a little bit, what would you say have been some like highlights you've had with the Pistons? Like favorite favorite days, oh, games, stuff like that. Boy, um, been a lot. I mean, the very first <clears throat> very first game I sat on was a practice. It was an exhibition game, but first time to be sitting right behind the bench. It's it's uh, that was pretty exhilarating. I mean, to think that I see as many basketball games as I do um, is incredible. But just being there so close, I mean, you know, watching LeBron play, for example, because obviously, you know, yeah, he's not on our team, but the guy's amazing. Um, being in the playoffs was just incredible, even though, you know, we were four and out. Just to be in that chase uh, to make the playoffs, that's been fantastic. The friendships you make, I mean, honestly, I uh, you know, players who were with us that aren't anymore. I mean, great example. We go to Washington. I love seeing Nish Smith. I mean, every time you get to see him on the court beforehand, it's awesome. Just great guys that you meet around with everything. So it's, it's hard to say, like, the biggest highlights. I mean, we had Jesse Jackson speak in our locker room once, which was pretty amazing. You know, some of the people who have been sitting around the court uh, that you see. I mean, talk to a few people that are just like, wow, I mean, like, how cool is that 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 just happened? I mean, we were just in Atlanta, and I was getting in the elevator with our strength coach, and Samuel L. Jackson walks on him. It's like, <laughs> okay, that doesn't happen every day. <laughs> the the hotels we stay in, I mean, it's, uh, you know, look, when I was with cycling, we stayed in some okay hotels, but, I mean, we stay in the Ritz in the Four Seas. I mean, we stay in nice hotels. It's, uh, you know, the way we travel, as much as I travel with cycling, you know, this is the way to travel and it's nice because there's so much that it can wear you down but it's just it's just such an amazing experience on so many levels to point to one or two things uh would be pretty difficult but i'd say probably one of the biggest things just showing up to you know team camp for the first time and you know meeting blake griffin and then thinking my god we've got three reggies how am i ever going to remember this (laughs) i'm sorry your name is what your name is what and then and now it's like you know, whatever. I got to remember 15 names. It's not that big of a challenge. But what seemed overwhelming is now just mundane. And I've learned so much sports-specific-wise. I mean, I think it's certainly helped my clinical growth. It's helped my clinical judgment. Um, I've, I've learned from the guys that I work with and the docs and our nutritionist. I mean, it's it's been great professionally. It's been very rewarding uh, professionally. Um, it's, it's, it's the dream job, and it turned out to really be you know, every now and then you're like, man, I would love to do this. And this is good. And you're like, yeah, this isn't as cool as I thought it would be. You know, this is as cool as I thought it would be. And, uh, you know, any nerves I had about, hey, I never really worked in basketball. I've done other sports. But, you know, there's certain specifics. If I need certain challenged movements challenged on the basketball court as part of their return to play, you know, I will use guys who've had that background. 
you know, and I, this is what I want to achieve. Okay. Then we work together to come up with a plan and, you know, certainly working with, you know, Jim and Shrems and, and the rest of my team has been very beneficial. And hey, here's some other ways to do things, you know, so I, you know, I've used some of the things that I did in cycling or hockey and those are different. So I think not being locked into just basketball, you also have some other ways, but it's just been, I mean, it's, I'm rambling, but it's just, it's one of those, it's just been one of those that like, man, you know, it's just, it's, it's crazy. And then I'll say like the downside, my wife busts on me for this, but I swear to God, you never know what day it is. It's a game day. It's practice <laughs> day, it's travel day. And you know, we're Catholic. So I, I remember my wife was like, Hey, are you going to stop eating meat for Lent? I'm like, on Fridays, I'm like, yeah, sure. Whatever. And she's FaceTiming me and I'm eating a hamburger. And she's like, are you really eating a hamburger? I was like, yeah, I'm starving. <laughs> and she, it's Friday. I was like, is it? yeah i mean it's i would know like if we're driving there's no traffic it's a weekend i mean i can honestly say that i've had since the season began and by season i mean like really once training camp began i've had two complete days off i mean players will get days off but we still go into do treatments so i've had thanksgiving and christmas off so it seems like wow that's brutal and if you think about it it is but but it's not because it's I wear sweatpants 90% of the time or shorts. And then I wear, you know, polo and slacks for games. And I thought, boy, if you told me I'd wear sweats for most of my work days, I'd have thought I was in heaven. So I think that was the score right there. Absolutely. I mean, I'll, I'll speak for both Nick and I on this one. It definitely sounds like a dream job. <laughs> oh, it's, it's awesome. And I mean, Working with, I mean, I used to laugh. It was uh, like with hockey. It was cool. Because with the Avalanche, I mean, we had Patrick Waugh, Rob Blake, Adam Foote, Peter Forsberg, Joe Second. These guys are in the Hall of Fame. And, and I'll never forget, there was one time I had to cover the bench in Los Angeles because the assistant trainer was sick. Uh, so, you know, I had to go on the ice. And uh, I won't use the player's name because it's embarrassing, but it was kind of weird, like to be on the bench and people are screaming at you, and I'm just like, oh my god! It's like I'm waiting for something to hit me in the head or some guy to jump over the glass. And then Adam Foot looks at me, he goes like, "God, I love this!" And I was just like, <laughs> "Wow, it's kind of crazy, and it moves so fast." Well, one of the players got hit in the head, and I had they're like, "Go get him!" I'm like, "Well, I'm gonna walk on the ice." So here I'm terrified that I'm gonna fall on my butt and be the laughing stock of Los Angeles. But we get the guy to the locker room, assess him, and you know they're like, "Well, you know, it seems okay, but you know, a couple stitches, but um, might have a concussion. So let's just be safe." So you know, I'm sitting there, and so it's like, "Hey, just watch to make sure he gets into the shower, okay?" And having worked in cycling and you know anatomy, I love anatomy. In fact, I have a one of the Leonardo da Vinci drawings of of the hip and the leg. Um, so this player walks by, and I look over, and I was like, my God, he's got striations in his glute as he walks. And I'm, just like, I'm like, this is like watching a racehorse walk by. It was just such an amazing, like, wow, that's amazing. So the head trainer comes back. It's like, hey, how is he? I was like, man, man, he's walking into the showers. That was amazing. I mean, he was having striations his glute. He's like, yeah, I don't think I'd make a big deal that you were staring at his ass when he was walking by. <laughs> That's not what I was doing. It was too scientific. But, yeah, so, I mean, you see these guys. I mean, I try to keep myself in good shape. But, I mean, you know, we got guys with, like, 3.5% body fat. It's 
you're working with such amazing athletes and the things that they can do, the speed, the power, it's just having an appreciation for that and getting to see it up close on a regular basis and the work that goes behind it has just been amazing. So with rookies coming into the league, they seem to be getting younger and younger. And we we both, we all know that guys don't really finish developing until kind of their mid-20s. What is kind of your professional opinion on when guys just come into the league so young? We're talking 19, 20, um, and they're playing up against kind of 30-year-olds and, and twenty like late 20-year-olds. What, what's your opinion on that? Well, I mean, I think, you know, some of these guys that you'll see coming out are, are pretty physically developed. So some are more suited to it than others. But you're right. You're not done developing. So one of the biggest things that I find is a lot of them need to learn a routine. So maybe they were in college or maybe they were in high school with their family who had some kind of structure to their lives. Now you're in the NBA and you don't have that structure. I mean, yes, we have a schedule for you know team meeting, treatments, walkthrough, game, practice, things like that. But you have to have a routine for, um, hey, you got to come in and prep. So before you come in for treatments, go and hit the cold tub. We'll do some hydro works for walking. Hey, if you need to get some relaxation, we'll get the massage therapist after practice. We've got a float tank. You know, all these different things. And it's just understanding that you have to put the time in to take care of your body. Because when they come in at 18, 19, 20, a lot of these guys never had a problem. You just show up, you play, and life is good. Hey, I'll work out. You know, I'll go to practice. You know, here you've got to make a dead, you know, dedicated approach to strengthening. Really getting your power, getting your mass, getting your your uh, body weight ratio appropriate. I'm targeting where your weakness is to to get better as an NBA player to maximize your abilities and taking care of your body from a nutritional standpoint. Getting sleep, hydrating, doing the recovery modalities. So it's really an educational thing. I mean, you know, we see guys by the second year, you know, it's, it's like you're the proud dad. It's like, my God, he walked right in and went right into the cold tub before he came in. He started doing contrast. It's like, you know, that's my guy right there. It's a, You know, you see these guys, but then you have, you know, some of our vets, they're great examples because they've been around the league a long time. So they know how important it is to take care of your body. So I think it's, you're going to develop. It's like anything else. I mean, you, you, you know you're not going to hit your peak. You know, In cycling, you may have a rock star. Um, I mean, and never mind the doping end, but if you look at a guy like Lance Armstrong, it took him a while, and he was a, a pretty gifted athlete before he got to that highest level. Uh, you see it in football. You see it in basketball where they come in, and, yeah, you get the guys who come in like a John Morant who are just amazing, but there's still a lot more – that he will do, and, and you see these guys, they evolve their game and get better. Steph Curry's a great example with it. You know, the ankle issues he had early on, and now you see, I mean, yes, I mean, he's got the broken hand, but how he evolved his game and his preparation and the strengthening to be able to become an MVP and lead his team to these titles, it's, it's a learning process, so you've got the skill, but you've got to learn how to be a professional basketball player, and there's a lot of different aspects to that. So I'd say that's the single biggest thing. The other thing is, and I will say ESPN had a great article on this uh, in the summer, was because of the specialization in sports, you know, when I was growing up, you know, you had baseball season, you had football season, basketball season, you may have run track or played soccer, but you had different sports. So you had targeted different areas. They do so much basketball only now, and not just playing basketball, but doing specific skill work that now you're seeing 
you know, 18, 19 year olds with patellar tendinopathies that you would have seen in a player after eight, 10 years in the NBA. So I'd say that is the bigger factor than the age and the physical development is the, is the physical beat down that some of these guys have had because they do the same movement, not, you know, you didn't have that variation of soccer where maybe you're going to use your muscles in a different way and on a more forgiving surface, constantly basketball courts, you know, doing drills, stopping, cutting, planting, jumping over and over and over and over. Then you play in your, you know, AAU leagues, then you go to college and you do this. So, you know, the load, the specific load, and the tissue wasn't ready for it. So you see more young people coming into the league with, you know, and it may not be symptomatic, but with all the tests we run, we can see, you know, pathologies that you probably wouldn't have expected to see in an 18 or 19-year-old kid. So kind of going off of that one, um, we've seen some players have to go kind of some drastic changes before starting to play or returning to play, ultimately like reworking their biomechanics or the way they move. Can you kind of talk on the the process that might be like why the medical team decided to do that or, or the team in general decided to do that? The rationale for trying to do it is understandable. Uh, I mean, you have a biomechanical dysfunction that is leading to a load uh, that is more than tissue can handle. I mean, when you break down what is a pathology or an injury is, you know, it's an abnormal stress on a normal tissue. So the tissue starts to break down. Problem is, is that some things are correctable and some things are not. And, you know, you've heard talk of the 10,000 hours and, and all that, but it, it's really hard to change fundamental movement patterns. And I'll use a, an example as boxing. You'll see a guy who's always a slugger, and it's like, you know what? He's getting tagged a lot. He's gone to another trainer, and they've changed the way he fights. And now you see him in camp, and they're, you know, swinging the pool noodles at him, and he's dodging him, and he's, you know, jabbing. It's like, wow, he's like a defensive wizard. Gets into the ring, pop, gets popped once, and he's the same guy because that's how they do it. it it's, it's really hard if you have – Hey, look, if you have a hyperpronated foot, if you have a flat foot, sure, we can use an orthotic to build up your arch. We can do some intrinsic strengthening. Um, we can work on some different range of motion to improve your ability to tolerate that. If you're flat-footed, I'm not going to give you a good arch, although we can support it with an orthotic. Now, if you are a high arch, very rigid foot, I can cushion for it. But if you're somebody who has that high arch, rigid foot, you have a high arch rigid foot, and I can't train you out of that. And the load that you're going to take at the lateral part of your knee or into your hips is not really going to change with movement patterns. So I think whereas we can change the mechanics on a jump shot and then they focus on keeping the elbow in, you know, following through with the pronation, you can work on things with repetition, but biomechanically some things cannot be changed. And sometimes those are what helps get you to where you are, but they're also one of the reasons you may have a problem. And we see it with hips. We see it with knees. I mean, you'll see, you know, people with the genuvalgus. I mean, I mean, there's a player, big contract guy, uh, not on our team, epic money, but guy can't get on the court anymore because it was just, if you look at his knees, it's kind of bow-legged, he's got that high arch foot, and it got to the point to where they just can't handle that load anymore. And you start playing, you can play a little bit, but then it's like, boop, they break down again. And, you know, I think it's a noble attempt, 
but I don't know. I mean, for example, I'm partly pigeon-toed. If you did a gait analysis on me, you'd, you'd probably point out a lot of things, except I don't really have any pain. But if you work on a program to change the way I walk, and then I'm going to go walk across the court real fast, probably going to keep walking the same way I do because I've been walking that way for an awful long time. And I don't know that you can change that in a matter of weeks or months. I think it's it's a tall order. So yes, on muscle imbalance, range of motion, and how you use what you have, but to change a biomechanical dysfunction that is structural, I don't know that you can truly do that with any amount of success. We, we learn in class that uh, it's important to treat the symptoms and not the way the patient is kind of built or structured. So I think that was just a, a reaffirmation that I'm learning some great stuff in PT school. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's true. I mean, I think sometimes, you know, you'll get the, uh, you'll get some people who believe like, hey, you know, you've been around it long enough. I can change this. You know, you, you can't. I mean, it's, you can lessen the impact, you can main, you can try to manage the effect, but it's again, you know, part of the reason I move the way I do, I have one tibia that's slightly longer and, you know, that's very common with different people. And if you're in a sport like cycling, hey, there's some easy modifications you can do to bike fit to make it fit better. But I will also tell you when I was in cycling, I would see some people, if you looked at them on a bike, you'd be like, good Lord. They look like a disaster. Knees flailing in, flailing out, you know, back rocking. He's like, this dude has got to be in agony. But they're faster than hell. They're winning races, and they don't have any pain. So somebody's like, could you imagine if we did a proper bike fit on them, how fast they'd be? It's like, they're winning races. If you did a proper bike fit, you know what's probably going to happen? It's going to change the load. They're going to start getting tendonitis. I used to do bike fits, and I would do, if, if I saw something needed to be changed, say five millimeters if it was if it was a recreational cyclist who rode you know maybe once a week and just in the summer i'd make the full change if it was a professional elite level cyclist i would make a couple millimeters i would let them adapt to it and then i would do it the rest of the way because i would see people make that full change and then you get hamstring tendonitis achilles tendonitis knee pain because they're so used to that pattern that a change of just a couple of millimeters if you go beyond that it's changed their mechanics enough to where their body can't adapt. So it, it, it's a, it can be a slippery slope at times. I mean, we, we try to improve the control. So like with the Delos, you will do proprioceptive control to try and improve their ability to manage their anatomy through the necessary range of motion. But again, I, I can't change if they have a rigid foot. It, that is what it is. You know, if they have genuvalgus, They've got genuvalgus, and I can't brace or strap or, or coax them out of that position. And that's always going to result in a different type of load at the knee than somebody who's not that way. Well, Bernard, um, this has probably been the most fun uh, interview for us, at least, uh, having the medical background. So we just wanted to thank you so much for coming on. Uh, that's that's really all the questions that we can think of right now. I'm sure as soon as we hang up, we'll be like, oh my gosh, I wanted to ask him this. Um, be like, but the guy never shuts up. Yeah. <laughs> hey, we, we, no, we love that. We love it. So, but yeah, I, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. You, you brought a lot of fun insight to uh, the, the medical side of basketball. Well, I appreciate that. Thanks for having me on.